Frank Herbert's 1965 science fiction novel Dune has certainly captured imaginations in the decades following its release. Politics, religion, and war are all amongst its repertoire of themes. But what's most fascinating with its story is when you compare it to modern day events and another slightly older book. Welcome to Signs of the Times Radio. Welcome back to another week of Signs of the Times Radio and back on the show we have Mark Hadley. Mark, how have you been doing? I've been doing well, I guess as well as it can be expected for everybody else in lockdown in New South Wales. But thanks very much for having me on the show. It changes my day up somewhat. Yeah, glad to hear that. This is a, a bright spark in your day. Now, something that might be a bright spark in your day is is reading books. And one book in particular is one that you've read multiple times, and that is the novel called Dune. And D-U-N-E as in the sand dune. Mark, when's the first time that you picked up this book and what's fascinated you so much about it? I think I would have picked up this book sometime in the 1970s. And basically, that would have been about close to 10 years after it came out, because it came out in 1965. It's really hard to underestimate the importance of a book called Dune. Uh, Dune is kind of like the science fiction equivalent of The Lord of the Rings. So when The Lord of the Rings came out, it it almost invented a whole style of storytelling in terms of fantasy. Before that, elves and dwarves and things like that were uh, fairy tale figures. You know, but when they became quite a serious concept, you know, when they got into The Lord of the Rings. When Dune came out, science fiction took a leap off the page from, uh, if you like, uh, sort of very terrestrial bound stories like you know, Journey to the Centre of the Earth and 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and things like that into something that was quite more distinct. World building became a real thing. So Frank Herbert constructed an entire, not just an entire world, but an entire universal structure. And in it, he set this world, this desert planet called Dune or Arrakis, you know, in, so in terms of the novel. And there was this fascinating sort of explosion of world-building novels that came out of that. So, Dune kind of capped off a revolution for science fiction, which is why it's still a very important novel. I mean, it's important for a lot of reasons, but in terms of its place in writing history, it's a really important book. It seems like Dune has been described as one of those novels that is unfilmable, though, as far as being adapted to cinema. Even though that has happened in the past now, like, I mean, other movies have also been described as such, like The Life of Pi, things like that. Hmm. How has this movie been adapted to the screen in the past? And what what were the sort of the results of that? Were they good adaptations? Well, I mean, you're absolutely right that it is something of a poison chalice when it gets handed to directors and film writers. Uh, people have been trying to adapt Dune for the screen for decades. I mean, more than that, for probably about 30, 40 years now. And it's... On the one hand, it's quite deceptively simple, isn't it? Just a science fiction story set on a desert planet. But the scale of it is so huge. And the the style of creatures that are involved in it, vast sandworms as tall as buildings and things like that, have often 
left science fiction struggling to try and present it on the big screen. However big the screen is, Dune is bigger. Uh, and so there's been several attempts. Uh, in 1984, David Lynch made a version of the storyline that starred people like Sting and Max von Sydow and Patrick Stewart. You know, people might know Patrick Stewart uh, as one of the captains from Star Trek. And that was an attempt to try and make it work for the big screen. Uh, and David Lynch said it was one of the most hateful experiences of his life. That He um, was so disappointed with the result in the end that it's a film that he was asked how he felt about the new film, Dune, coming out. And he said he just didn't want to think about it because it brought back too many bad memories. So you get an idea of how difficult it must be to adapt something like this. And the film itself was no great, great winner. There was a TV series that was done in 2000. Uh, John Harrison adapted the novel as a television series, and that became that went on to the Sci-Fi Channel, and the Sci-Fi Channel managed to make it one of its three highest rating programs ever. So it's had an attempt there. It was also a failed production of Dune that uh, was only about 10 years ago, and the director's name escapes me. But again, it's like... Um, do you know that old saying about boats? What are boats? They're holes in the water you pour money into. Well, I think <laughs> do you, I think Dune is is one of those film scripts that you just pour money into and hope that somehow it'll float. So this time around, it has been an epic struggle to bring it to the screen. And you've got the, the current version is actually directed by Villeneuve, Denis Villeneuve, and. He has devoted himself to this. Since he first began working with science fiction scripts, he was using those scripts. You might know him from the director of Arrival and Blade Runner 2049. He says he's been using those sorts of science fiction winners to try and train himself up to be ready to produce Dune. And so if anything, he's taking a long, long running jump at this and we're all hoping it'll, it'll land it. Yeah, I actually hadn't heard of uh, Dune. I know that's probably sacrilege for some. I hadn't <laughs> heard of it until this movie came around. And then I found out that my fiance had also read the book and was extremely excited because of its story. Meanwhile, I was excited because Denis Villeneuve was directing it. Something very interesting in his cinematography work is his stories have always had a sense of gritty realism to them. So for example, he's done Sicario, which is about the, the cartel at the war against drugs and the cartel in Mexico and the border there in America. But then there's also the, the sci-fi movies, like you mentioned, Arrival and Blade Runner 2049, which all kind of have this sense of grittiness to them. And he's one of the most exciting directors there is in Hollywood, which has attracted me to, to find out more about this movie. But I think let's just reflect, um, because you mentioned that the story of, of June is quite political. It's got a lot of political themes in it. And yet, the movie release itself, just before we even get into stuck into what the story is about, the movie has seen a lot of political stuff shifting around as far as the changing landscape of streaming. I think it was Warner Brothers that's going to be distributing this movie decided that they're going to take this movie and a bunch of others and release them simultaneously in cinemas in America on their streaming platform, HBO Max. So it releases in cinema, but also you can watch it at home. And for... A lot of filmmakers who are pretty traditional about the idea of cinema and then release thereafter. This has been quite insulting. In fact, Denis Villeneuve wrote a open letter about how disappointed he was that they did that and he panned it multiple times. Pretty interesting. Do you think that June, even though, like you mentioned, it's this story that has stood the test of time over the decades and filmmakers have been trying to adapt it. Is it going to represent something more 
in the history of cinema than just the story that it's trying to tell. That's interesting you should say that. I often think that people are a little too precious about the medium in which their work is is shown. I've had the privilege of working in television now for about 35 years and have survived at least the death of television three times. You know, there is a, hmm. a sense, it's same thing with cinema. You know, people have often been predicting the, the death of cinema for various reasons. Look, I think it's an overreaction to worry about whether or not something will turn out well on a streaming service versus a cinematic environment. There's no doubt that if you feel that something is going to appear somewhere in a particular medium, like a cinema, you're going to shoot it in a particular way, you're going to order the sound in a particular way, it's going to be you know, produced that way so as it actually has the best sort of effect. But the truth is that a good work survives anywhere. Uh, you might say it's a travesty to watch something on, you know, like the Lord of the Rings on the back of a plane seat, you know, while you're crossing the Atlantic or something like that. But the truth is that good stories float. That They do quite well. Cream floats to the top. And if Dune is a good story, it will survive a, a change in medium. Uh, I think that the big issue, though, for film directors and producers is that they're caught on the cusp of a new technology and they're worried that in some respects that their work won't be respected or won't get the return that it wants from the audience. And maybe even not just the audience, but actually the film industry itself. I mean, Cannes Film Festival famously year before last was actually saying that it wouldn't actually accept entries from films that had not had cinematic releases if somehow because they weren't real films. They didn't have a real credibility to them. And so to some degree, I think, directors feel a bit precious about this stuff not getting that sort of release. However, if we look at it the other way around, there is a far greater likelihood of a film being seen and being taken up by streaming services than there are of people going out to cinemas to see it, uh, particularly in the current environment. So it is very political, but at this stage, as I understand it, Warner Brothers is not talking about a singular release on streaming services, but a dual release, so cinemas and streaming services. So I see no reason to believe when you're still paying, if you take Disney for a model, you're still paying $30, $35 for a rental of one of their latest release Disney films. You're probably looking at something quite similar. And in fact, largely, it's just academic in Australia, because we don't seem to have the the platform, the necessary platform in our country to actually see it on streaming anyway. So most probably that's going to be the case in much of the world, given that HBO Max is largely an American property. Uh, so the rest of the planet will probably still be trooping out to cinemas to see it, lockdowns permitting. Yeah, absolutely. It's still very interesting to see. I guess, the, the political things that are going on over there. I mean, recently, Christopher Nolan announced that he's going to be taking his next movie about the invention of the atomic bomb to Universal Studios instead of Warner Brothers, where he's done most of his stuff, which again, a lot of people can speculate if that's due to the fact that, yeah, his movies would most likely re get a dual release as well. Like Christopher Nolan is a Puritan of cinema. Hmm. So yeah, pretty interesting stuff how that's happening. But as far as June goes, yeah, it, you're right. It is going to be released in cinemas in Australia for those who are able to watch it. Um, and I, because, I might add just before we leave this topic that there was actually a similar reaction to people who moved directors and film writers and producers and such when films moved from silent cinema to talkies. 
You know, it's the mm. idea that somehow that sound would disturb the audience so much that it would ruin the film. And in fact, that it meant that they wouldn't be able to use certain actors who were great visually, but not great in terms of their ability to deliver lines. So these sorts of changes always bring about fear and trepidation, but I have a great deal of faith in the survivability uh, of good picture stories. You know, the medium will change, the stories won't. Absolutely. Wise thoughts there. Now, given that the movie is being surrounded by this political tension, the movie is about political tension. Can you give us a scope of the idea of what this story is really about? Because we've been talking about the, <laughs> the everything surrounding it, but what is the story of June really without spoiling it? Yeah, let let me see if I can get a a fair thumbnail of 700 pages into a few sentences. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, look, Dune, probably the ultimate holiday book, by the way, if you're thinking of of one reading, you're going to sit down and, and take about a month to get through it. It's the story of a particular political house, a house called House Atreides. And if you think about this whole empire, just think about it in terms of dominant families. Instead of one planet, though, or one continent, think of it as dominant families spread across the universe. There is an emperor, and then there are these key houses. And the two key houses that the story is concerned with is House Atreides and their vile enemies, House Harkonnen. Now, House Atreides looks like it can be a bit of a threat to the emperor, that he, the House of Trades might actually become more significant than the emperor himself and thereby take over the empire. So he comes up with a plan. He says, I'd like you, invites them, of course, it's a sort of a false invitation. I'd like you to give over your current planet and instead take on the management of planet Arrakis or the planet Dune. Now, this seems something like a promotion because the planet is the only source of this thing called the spice. Now, the spice is, or melange as it's sometimes called in the book, is the thing that makes it possible to travel from one point in the galaxy to another. The tra- Navigator Guild use the spice to change their minds, to fold space, allow people to travel. So think about it this way. This is the one planet in the galaxy where fuel is available. And so if you control that, then you control the galaxy. And that's one of the themes of the book. Whoever controls spice controls the universe. And so into this falls a much more relatable young character, a fellow called Paul Atreides. He's the heir of the of the Atreides household. And when everything, which I won't try and give away too much, but when everything goes to hell in a handcart, Paul Atreides has to either fall apart with his family or rise to the level of something far more significant, not just a uh, head of a household, but the head of a cult, a, a new messiah, if you like, who will somehow unite the people of Dune and thereby control the, the spice and the universe. In the book, he's only portrayed as being very young, isn't he? Like 15 Mm. years old, yeah? He's quite young. Yeah, 15, 16. And so, now, I mean, the book itself takes him through till probably his early 20s, but it's a little uh, iffy on the the ages. But he's on that cusp of manhood in the beginning of the book. And he's also, he's learning how to fight. He's learning how to pay attention to politics. He's learning uh, mental disciplines from his mother all of these sorts of things, he's right on the edge of of taking his own step into manhood, which is part of the book in itself. It sounds like the movie and the book itself, they really tackle on themes that are are epic in scope. And maybe that's why this is so exciting because it's been a while since we've had 
a film of such a grand scope. I mean, we're looking at the Star Warses of the world, the, the Avatars, John Carter's. It's been a while since we've had a movie that has tackled on themes this big. But it, I guess it's interesting because of the the political and, and I guess, religious aspects in it. Can you little, just share about what those are? Because, I mean, you mentioned that, that there's political tension. Obviously, there's between the houses. It sounds very Game of Thrones-esque when you mention the, the houses that are competing <laughs> amongst each other. But what are some sort of, I guess faith-based connections or religious connections that people may notice within within the story? Well, actually, it's interesting you mentioned Star Wars because Dune has been likened to the Star Wars for adults. So if Star Wars is a bit more sort of puppetry, so to speak, you know, it's got a bit more sort of childlike themes. This Dune is a much more serious affair. And so in that regard, the themes in it are much more adult. And so there's a lot of, of religious, political power plays going on. I think the three main players in those power plays, there's a, a, a sort of prophetic group called the Bene Gesserits, you know, who are looking for, they're, they're trying to use genetic breeding to breed their own messiah. And they think that Paul Atreides might be the result of their, of their great breeding program that's been going on for centuries. And then there, of course, there's the Spice Guild, which the Navigators Guild, which I mentioned before, who uh, themselves are a sort of quasi-religious organization. That their working of folding of space and things like that is almost ritual, you know, in the way that it's carried out. And then finally, you actually have the Fremen, the people of Dune themselves who have been looking for their own Messiah who one day come to lead them to transform their world into a world of, of flowing water rather than the, than the desert it is. So there's a lot of emphasis throughout this of a great fantastic figure who will come to somehow unite people and thereby bring about the salvation of those people involved, whether it be the Bene Gesserit or whether it be the Fremen or whether it be the Spice Navigators themselves. Everybody is looking for someone who is going to make a big difference, who's going to challenge and change everything. One of the really tricky things, though, is that when the book itself acknowledges that when people combine religion and politics, it's a deadly affair. There's the sense that nothing can stand in their way when the two of them are united, but at the same time, they're ignorant of their own doom as they rush along, as the book puts it towards a precipice that doesn't show itself to a man in a blind rush, the book says. And so this is the idea that there's not just this religious struggle, there's this teetering religious mass that could fall over and crush everybody beneath it. And so the book is really quite resplendent with big religious themes all the way through. It sounds like Frank Herbert definitely read the Bible. I mean, everything you just mentioned there, like, again, I have not read the book, but a lot of the stuff you mentioned there just bears similarity to Jesus' arrival as described in the Bible. Like there was the Jewish people who were awaiting a Messiah. There was Jesus who claimed to be a Messiah for all people, very similar to, to what you mentioned there. But I really want to touch into some of the things that you just mentioned, how we see what our relationship is with politics and what the relationship between religion and politics is. Now, I've heard a saying once that a movie has to have some sort of relevance to the time that it was released in. And you draw some really interesting parallels there between the, the relationship between religion and politics and things that have happened recently, in particular, the relationship between evangelicals and the last 
administration in the United States, one that many believed represented their values, which could be argued by some and argued against by others as potentially failing those values. What is it about us as humans that we put so much value and we sort of hope that in a way, not that someone would become a messiah, but we definitely put a lot of value onto the people in charge and even connect that back to our personal beliefs like our faith. Oh, look, I think I think you're spot on in saying that a film has to have relevance with its time because it builds its initial audience that way. And then maybe if it has long-term relevance, you know, it becomes what we call a classic. Uh, and I think part of the tension that you're pointing out has to do with the fact that religion doesn't satisfy itself with just being good news for you or good news for me. We, we don't just see it as something that's individually good for us. If we believe that it is something that's good for us, it's natural that we then think it might be good for somebody else as well. Now, the Christian faith is right at the heart of that because it, it believes not only that every single person will benefit from hearing what the Bible has to say about their state before God and what God has done to, to remedy that, but it actually has inbuilt in itself a command to go out, Jesus says, and to make disciples of all nations. So when you have something that actually is not just for you as an individual, but is for everybody, the transformation of the world becomes part of the, the quest of the faith. Uh, and that's when, in that process, we have a very dangerous little cusp, and that is where in which we not simply seek to change the world around us, but we seek power to change the world around us. So what actually happened with Trump's administration in the United States is that American evangelicals, so some polls have different sort of exit polls have different sort of results, but 80% of white evangelicals backed the Republican president as far as some exit polls were concerned in 2016 and again in 2020. And there's that sense where if they could get the candidate that, who is going to transform the world in a shape that was more recognizable to a, a Christian background, then that would somehow promote the gospel. So there was, you could see why so many Christian evangelists and such would be getting behind Trump, because there was the idea of being able to transform the world for the sake of the gospel. Now, here's where we fall apart. Uh, the problem is that we see the results of our evangelism as somehow up to us. So we're responsible for transforming the world. It's a heady thing if you somehow get a taste of power. You think that you can do the very thing which God promises that he will do. The Bible makes it quite clear that our job is to preach to spread the good news, but it is in fact actually God's job to see whether or not it will take root. You know, some will grow, some won't. There will be a harvest, but we won't be able to tell who they are to the, the last days. And, and so, you know, I think the powerful problem that we have when religion and politics meet is when we start to misapply our role as to what it is that we're responsible for doing. Uh, and it's that as close as faith comes to power, is as, is as close as faith comes to corruption, as it comes to a skew away from the values of the church itself. And this is not a new thing. It's been happening since the very first taste of power which the church has experienced. So you can go back to the first 500 years of the church's history. And when the emperor Justinian becomes a convert, 
then you suddenly have an opportunity for a very weak and maligned group, the Christian faith inside of the empire, to suddenly become associated with the most powerful man in the world at that time. And so the idea is that when you have people, when the church comes too close to power, the temptation to take control for the sake of the gospel becomes almost overwhelming. And this is what's happening, actually, if I just drag us all the way back to Dune. This is what's happening uh, in Dune. You have these religious groups who are so taken up by their faith that they are seeking to transform the world through political power, and that political power itself is actually corrupting them in the process. And Paul Atreides is actually quite worried about this. He's not actually thrilled about the idea of becoming someone's messiah. Uh, because he understands that the forces that are involved will actually turn him into more of a figurehead uh, and take him far away from his actual desires. In fact, if I might now skip back to the Bible, this is something Jesus himself was worried about, which is why he often said to his disciples at a particular time in his ministry, don't tell anybody about me. Learn what you're learning here, but no, don't go spreading this around. People aren't ready for this. Their very own desires as to how the world should be will actually sweep me away. He won't actually be able to achieve his purpose at that time. So part of it is actually hiding from power until the time is right. It's an interesting piece of tension that you you draw upon there and one that we actually even unpacked a little bit in one of our author's articles for this month, and she'll be on a podcast too, which was the question, does religion cause wars? Because like you mentioned there, I guess it's not even through the pure evil intent, but just the fact that when religion gets close to to power, it has a, a corruptive effect in some senses. I guess the question is then, what is the balance? Because I know in the United States, they pride themselves on being a Christian nation, Whereas for Australia, I guess, we pride ourselves on being a secular nation. And yet, you know, the Bible is still sworn on in government and stuff like that. Where is the line with this sort of stuff, do you think? Oh, gee, I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> Just thinking to myself, this is a question. Where is the balance between power and faith that has bothered people since, well, time immemorial? It's a, a question that worried the great John Calvin in terms of the city-state of Geneva. You know, was uh, he wielded um, significant political power, but he was also first and foremost a churchman. So how is he going to balance that out? And the same questions have risen right through history. If you think in terms of Elizabeth I, quite uh, possibly one of the best champions of the Protestant faith, at least in England, and yet also at the same time the queen of an empire. And so you have a, a situation where it can be quite difficult to separate these things. What is enough power? What's too much power? I think that it comes down to not so much a particular series of balances. There are times in history where you have Christian kings and there are times you have pagan kings. I think the, for as far as the Christian is concerned, it actually has to be a personal religion. And I think that the more personal the person is towards their faith at that time, the better the ruler they're going to make. And likewise, in terms of political parties today, the more personal the faith is for the politician, the better a job they're going to do as a Christian politician in their context. I mean, think about it in terms of King David. Uh, King David, when his heart is for God, does an amazing job 
at various stages in his pre-rule and then in his stage as a king. But when his heart drifts away from God, he doesn't change his political position at all, but he does incredible infamy in terms of sleeping with Bathsheba and having a husband killed. So it's not the power relationship that's changed. The thing that actually keeps Christians safe in power is the fact that they have a personal relationship with God. And if they have a personal relationship with God, which is fundamentally a humble one before God, then I would trust a humble person with power. I'm not sure how I would trust someone who always felt they were right. Now, Mark, while we're talking about the ideas of faith and politics, one of the other interesting sort of themes that you've picked up on in June is the the other sort of the epic struggle, some would put it as such, between faith and science. Mm. Now, it's really interesting that, that you pick up on that sort of thing because that's in June, without spoiling anything again, you describe that it manifests itself at, at a later point in the story, actually. Not sure if this will be the case with the movie because the movie is actually split into two parts. Yes. Uh, June... The movie we're seeing right now is going to be the first part and then they're in the stages of writing the second part, which will come out at a later time, I guess. So I'm not sure if we'll actually see that happen, but it is an interesting point that you you make because how much does, does science rely on external factors? I guess you sort of pick up that faith is a little bit more steadfast and whereas science is a bit more subject to change in that science, people trust science more because of that. But is there limitations to that sort of thing? Well, I think I might clarify my own position to say that both faith and science are dependent upon revelation. And now I might just try and explain that a little by saying we understand why faith is dependent on revelation. We're actually believing in something which has been revealed to us first through the creation and then through the prophets and finally through and most ultimately through Christ. So that's what we build our faith on. But science in itself is dependent on revelation too, because the scientific method posits something to be true. It, it expresses a certain degree in faith that an idea might be true, and then it goes about it goes about trying to prove that. And so it comes up with a position. This has been scientifically proven. If in fact they can repeat the act after a form, then it is in fact scientifically provable. But then science is in itself dependent very much on. Uh, a revelation of information that may change all the basis of science. Um, I was reading about this in particular. One of the things that actually impressed me was in 1572, they made the first observation of a star going nova in the night sky. Now, up until that point, everybody thought, every scientist assumed that and made their interpretations of the night sky on the basis that the stars were immutable, which means that they don't change at all. So when one of them suddenly blows up and disappears, then you suddenly have a, a revelation that the heavens are not what you thought they were, and science has to start rethinking all of its conclusions. So both faith and or both religion and science have this dependence on revelation. If something changes the the background on which all of conclusions, whether it be religious ones or scientific ones, if something changes the background or changes the foundation, then things have to be rebuilt. And I think that that's probably one of the, the changeable things we keep forgetting about when it comes to science, that in, in my lifetime, changes have occurred which have made us reevaluate the way that uh, we see the universe. So, for example, I actually remember when I was a child, I got given, we were talking earlier about Star Wars, I got given the Star Wars book of, of scientific facts. 
And it was just something that I had when I was 12. And I remember looking at their map of the night sky and they pointed out that all those hazy, you know, sort of gaseous, like almost cloud smears inside of the uh, Milky Way were neblionic gas. That's what we were looking at. We we're looking at neblionic gas. Well, since then, we've discovered, in fact, that, that they're not, that's not neblionic gas at all. It's just further stars further away. And so many of them, the fact that it appears that the night sky, the Milky Way, has so many stars involved, it looks like gas between the stars. And that fundamentally changed first the number of stars in the sky and then the potential for planets that could be orbiting those stars and then the sorts of Earth-like planets that could be around those stars. Everything changed because of one understanding. And I think that that's the sort of thing that we've got to remember when it comes to science is that everything can change. It's only factual up until the point it meets the conditions which we have presupposed to be fixed once those fixed situations change, then everything's up for grabs. And that's why I think in one respect, science is a little less certain than religion because religion has actually based itself on a divine revelation. As far as it is concerned, that is immutable. That can't change. But scientists, well, might very much be trying to come up with a whole new theory once Christ returns, if in fact there was time to do so, because the background itself, the foundations have suddenly changed and science has to change with it. A great idea there. It does really bring about questions of the, the lack of stability, I guess. It, you know, the fact that accepting that what you know can change tomorrow, uh, completely redefine what you believe in, or that will make people maybe sit back with a bit of skepticism about what they believe at all. And just tying this back to the idea of the Messiah, you know, which is a key theme throughout June. It's a key theme in the Bible. What sort of stability does the Messiah idea bring? And if we are to accept that, that Jesus Christ, as he claimed he was, was a Messiah in the Bible. I think one of the things we have to bear in mind when we look at a storyline like Dune is just how universal the hunger for someone to come and fix things up is. Now, it's not enough that it turns up in every major religion. It's the fact that it actually turns up even in our stories that we make up for ourselves. We have this idea that someone must come along to someone external to our situation and our circumstance and do something about it because we ourselves are not sufficient. There's a desert planet in Dune and it longs for water. Uh, it's a world which is hoping for transformation, but someone bigger than that planet has to come along to change it. And so Paul Atreides is presented as this messiah-like figure that's uh, been waited for throughout all time. Someone, if you like, larger than life, larger than the planet itself in order to transform things. Now, we tell ourselves these stories for a reason. We tell ourselves these stories, I believe, because we're just programmed better to understand our world that way. If we were created by God with a longing for God, it should not surprise us that we see God in so many of our different situations and stories and myths and such. In fact, I would find it surprising if we didn't, if in fact the entire universe has been wrapped around God and our longing to be with him and to be different ourselves so we can be with him, we should expect to see stories of messiahs cropping up. We should expect to see stories of, of the need for rescue in human life and for a transformation, which we ourselves can only glimpse and guess at at this point in time. Now, Dune does that. Dune tells a fantastic messiah story. 
and with all the complications because what happens when you have a messiah who's truly just human in the end you know what exactly happens to the people who trust in him is a very interesting story to be told but mm. in ourselves we see this need for someone external to ourselves i think it's a i, I think it is a very strange thing when you meet someone who is completely convinced that they are the master of their own destiny. My usual conclusion when I meet this person is they just haven't lived long enough yet uh, to actually hmm. see that there are plenty of circumstances which they can't survive on their own, uh, which they uh, they find themselves quite powerless in. So when we talk about the need for a Messiah, we talk about a fundamentally human thing, which is in our stories as much as it is in our lives. So where can we find a Messiah? I mean, if it's a if it's an innate need that's within humans, which is you know we express that often through the the media that we create, then where can we go looking for one? Well, you know, as a Christian, I'm going to say the Bible, but let me see if I take a step back from that for a second and say that we can't actually find a Messiah in ourselves. If there was some person out there who could actually transform the rest of us, then we'd all be hoping to be Messiahs or God-like people in one day and age. And some people actually believe that maybe that's what will happen with the human race. We'll all rise to some level and we'll become God-like. But the truth is that We've had enough recorded history now to know that human beings are fundamentally faulted and they can't, as my father used to put it, we're incapable of pulling ourselves up by our own bootstraps. Uh, we need mm -hmm. someone external to ourselves to do that. Um, so if we need someone who is better than us to save us, I would assume that that person is going to need to reveal themselves to us. In fact, if such a person existed, I would look through history to try and find that person, and I would look to see whether or not they'd actually had a transformative effect. Probably one of the strongest arguments for me, both as a, a writer and, and a, a history writer particularly, part of the strongest idea for me in terms of the importance of Christianity and the truth for it ultimately is that the amazing transformative effect it has had on society as a whole and history in general. Christianity has convinced people generation after generation that this humble man from Nazareth actually was much, much more than that. And firstly, the transformation began in individual lives, which then transformed communities and societies. In fact, empires themselves became transformed, and not just for decades or centuries, but for millennia now. And if anything would point to the existence of a Messiah out there, surely it would have to be that almost universal understanding historically that Jesus was not just a man, but was something far, far more than that. So I figure before I would even worry myself about whether or not there was in fact some truth to be had in the history, I'd say here's enough of a hint to take me to the Bible to read it for myself. I don't know how familiar our listeners are with the Bible, but I would uh, say, as I say to many people when I actually take them through the Bible, find out for yourself. Don't, don't be conned into a belief or an understanding which somebody else gives you. Have a look at one of the historical documents. Go to the Gospel of Mark, the earliest biography we have for the life of Jesus, and read it for yourself and ask the question which the author is asking all the way through, who is this man? Who is he? And if you can read that and come away unchanged without any idea of who Jesus is, uh, I would find that startling, absolutely startling, uh, because he is the sort of individual who demands to be met and met at his own terms. Absolutely. And there's incredible accounts 
in the gospels of, of exactly what you mentioned, Jesus' transformative effect on people, like he was transforming people both emotionally as well as physically the way that he was healing people. So definitely if you if you want to know more and, and check out the, the evidence, I guess, for Jesus being a Messiah, the gospels there, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and you know, Jesus also appears in Acts. Check those books out in the Bible. They'll definitely be a great read, as well as June, I guess, if you want right. to check out that. <laughs> there you go. A great way to spend your summer would be doing both of them. There's no doubt about that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, the movie is obviously coming out, I think, on October 22. Is it in Australia? Well, on October 22, we hope. Because at this point in time, yeah. it was supposed to come out in September. And we're all living in that world of not quite sure as long as lockdown continues. That's right. Yeah, it's definitely one of those movies that's just falling victim to being pushed back constantly over and over. But hopefully we do get around to watching it and I will be sure to tap you into your thoughts once you manage to see it. Having Being the fact that you've read the book multiple times, it'll be cool to hear what you say. But in the meantime, thanks so much for joining us, Mark. Awesome insight and really cool analysis that you have of the story and, and its connections to the Messiah idea. I really appreciate that you joined us this week. Now, it's always a pleasure, mate. Today's episode was based on an article appearing in this month's Signs of the Times magazine. A subscription is just $26 for 11 issues a year. To find out more, visit signsofthetimes.org.au in Australia or signsofthetimes.org.nz in New Zealand. This is an Adventist media podcast.